Hey there, thanks for tuning in to the St Albans Five Docs Sermon Podcast. We're a church in Sydney's inner west, following Jesus and helping people find grace, learn hope and be light. If you'd like to visit us or find out more, go to cciw.church. Speaking of the Queen, at her coronation, the Queen was presented with a Bible. And as she was being given this Bible, these extraordinary words rang out from Westminster Abbey and around the world. The words were these. We present you with this book, the most valuable thing that this world affords. Here is wisdom. This is the royal law. These are the lively oracles of God. Now the queen that day was wearing a priceless golden crown adorned with 2,000 901 precious stones. She was sitting upon a throne that was in a 1,000-year-old vaulted abbey. And yet, God's word was recognized as the most valuable thing this world can afford. And the reason why the book that you have before you or that is on the ground or on a chair near you is the most valuable thing in the world is because from beginning to end, it is a witness, it is a witness to the one the Apostle Paul calls in, in the passage we just read, it's a witness to the one in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That's why it's the most valuable thing the world affords. It's a witness to the one in whom all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden. So we're going to jump straight into the passage this morning. We'll spend most of our time exploring the source of wisdom and knowledge and then the effect of wisdom and then growing in wisdom. So we're going to look at the source of all knowledge and wisdom. Most people around us have one category to fit Jesus into. Like many before him and after him, Jesus was an influential religious teacher. The category our society has for Jesus is that of teacher. The verses 15 to 20 which is a a poem or or a hymn that's beautifully structured. It's full of parallelism and symmetry. The picture that poem paints of Jesus is way too big for the category of teacher. Jesus is a teacher, and thank God for that, but he's so much more. So look at the passage, verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God. He is the image of the invisible God. The last bit of the verse is in line with pretty much all classical understandings of God, Greek, Roman, Jewish. God is invisible. God's not a part of creation. You can't point at anything in creation and say, there's God. God is outside of creation. He's not a part of it. And so he's invisible. But invisibility is a challenge to knowability. How do you know someone you can't see? And so the Greek tradition, influenced by Aristotle, said that the unmoved mover, the being beyond all being, the ground of all things, is unknowable. That's what he said. God's invisible, so he's unknowable. You might be able to get somewhere by logic and reason, but it's as if God's face is turned away from us. We can't get to know anything about him or it or whatever it is. That's the Greek tradition. 
On the other hand, there's the option to create an idol, an image of God. How do you relate to an invisible God? Create a statue, an image of this God. It's an attempt to solve the invisibility problem. But this solution comes with a new problem. When you fashion an idol, you're using your own assumptions about the divine to create the image. How do you know that that image or that statue actually represents the true God? But the hymn begins. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. And just in case we think the Apostle Paul is trying to turn Jesus into something that Jesus never claimed for himself, in John's Gospel, chapter 14, Jesus says, If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and the Father are one, Jesus says. Jesus solves the invisibility problem. He is the image of God. So when you're talking to a friend about Christian things and, and they say, oh, I believe in God because most people still are theists. They say, oh, I believe in God. It's worth asking that person, which God do you believe in? Describe this God. What's this God like? It's a good question to ask because it's too often assumed what God is like. For many around us, when we think of God, we're thinking of something like a heavenly giant, a distant figure, high on power, and low on personality. And the danger is that if we say Jesus is God, people might hear us trying to convince them that Jesus is that God, high on power, low on personality. But it works the other way around. When we see Jesus, we see laughing, we see crying, we see shouting, we see eating, we see drinking, we see loving, we see stooping, we see suffering, we see dying. When you see Jesus, you see something completely different to the heavenly giant. And our job isn't to tell people that Jesus is the heavenly giant made visible. Our job is to say, forget the heavenly giant. Forget everything you thought you knew about God. Look at Jesus. Let him be our image of the invisible God. Lord Byron, who's a poet, he once said, if God isn't like Jesus, he ought to be. So we're still in verse 15. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Firstborn doesn't mean what you think it means or what it sounds like it should mean. It doesn't mean that Jesus was the first thing among creation that was created. It doesn't mean he was the first thing created. In the ancient world, firstborn is a title. It designates the inheritor of the estate, the rightful possessor of all that the family has. And so Jesus, as the Son of God, Paul's saying that he is the firstborn, the inheritor of all creation. Verse 16 and 17, follow with me. Verse 16 and 17, for because in him all things were created. Things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. What this is saying is that because Jesus is the image of the invisible God, Jesus does that which only God does. Jesus creates all things. All things have been created through him and for him. You know how apples have stickers on them? It's as if everything in the universe has a stick on it, created through 
and for Jesus. And let's just think about the word for, for just a second. Created for Jesus. That word has to do with purpose. A hammer was created for putting nails into wood. Buttercrumbs croissants are made for my consumption. They are so good. Wine glasses are made for wine. We are made for Jesus. Coming to Jesus is a homecoming. He's fit for purpose. And we're going to return to that in just a moment. We'll continue in the passage. Verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church. Uh, the Queen of England technically um, isn't the head of the body. He's, he's the supreme governor. Uh, Jesus is the head of the body, but, you know, it's easy to think that. Um, he is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So Jesus isn't only the creator, the firstborn of all creation, but also the firstborn from among the dead. Do you see the parallelism? Jesus is both the creator and he's the recreator. Not only the one who created the world, but the one who is healing and bringing reconciliation to a broken world, creator and redeemer. So it says, in him he might have the supremacy. And you notice where this recreation begins, this new life and this new healing that will spread throughout the world one day. Do you, know, do you notice where it begins? It's already begun in verse 18, in his body, the church. Amongst us. And so Jesus isn't only a moral teacher. Jesus is the logic, he's the reason by which all things were made. I don't know if you noticed in the Proverbs reading. In the world, it's as if there's a voice that, that calls out from the center of all things. It's as if there's a voice that calls out from creation. Listen. We hear this voice singing sometimes. We hear it in the harmonies of sound. We hear it in the equations of mathematics or physics. And this voice that calls from creation is wooing us to live in line with the grand of the universe. This voice says honesty and hard work and loyalty and friendship. These are living in line with wisdom's voice. And this same voice that calls out to us, woman wisdom in Proverbs, doesn't only reverberate in creation. This passage says that it, it sings a tune of recreation, of healing of reconciliation, of pulling things together that are broken. There's this voice. And Colossians is saying that the one who speaks is Christ Jesus. He's the creator. He's the redeemer. In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So I've got Alpha on my mind, the course Alpha on my mind. I'll announce in just a moment that we've got a new date set for another Alpha course. And in one of the weeks of Alpha, we hear the story of Shane Taylor. This is Shane. Um, in his story, he starts like this. I got in with the wrong crowd. And he goes on to tell how he and his friends would steal cars, break into houses. They became, in his words, high-profile thieves. And he eventually went to prison for two attempted murders. And he said... Um, and he went into prison with such a deep 
seated anger towards the system that when he went to prison, he stabbed a prison officer and so ended up in a maximum security prison, being fed through a small hatch in the door. Eventually, after having been transferred from prison to prison, he ended up at a prison that was running an alpha course. He knew nothing about the course, but the guards sent him to take part in it. And when he realized that it was a Christian thing, he, he sighed, he says, and he'd argue every single week. But he remembers clearly on one of the weeks, the pastor leading the course said, I'm going to say a few scriptures, the pastor said, and then we'll pray. And one of the passages the pastor read was, no one is righteous, not even one. We all fall short of the glory of God. And then in Shane's words, the pastor said some verses about Jesus and why he died for sinners and stuff. That's what he said. And the pastor invited the inmates to pray silently. And so Shane said to God, God, if you're real, come into my life because I hate who I am. And then Shane continued, nothing happened. But as I was, Shane speaking, as I was talking to the pastor, I started to feel this energy in my stomach. And it was just rising and rising and rising until... I broke into uncontrollable tears. Shane sobbed. And then in the video, he says this, because that was the change of my whole life. He then goes on to describe his life from then on. People began to find out that he became a Christian. And so he himself was given permission to run alpha courses in this maximum security prison. He eventually got released, and now he's a prison chaplain and a dad with four kids. He says... What upsets me is because now I know that back then, if I had the kids, they wouldn't have had a good upbringing. But now they sit each night and have Bible studies with their dad. What happened to Shane? And what happens to anyone who becomes a Christian? Is that he allowed the source of wisdom of creation, the source of creation and recreation, he allowed this one into his life. And of course, when that happens, things begin to change. Shane began living in line with the grain, not against it, as a husband, as a father, even as an inmate. And his life began moving to the beautiful sound of healing and redemption. Do you see it's something like a homecoming? If it's true that all things, including Shane and including you, were made for Jesus, if that's true, then that's exactly what you'd expect. It works when you give yourself to Jesus. It clicks. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, our creator and our redeemer. That's my first point. The source of wisdom and knowledge. My second point is the effect of wisdom. So look at verse 21. The effect of wisdom. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation, if you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. So from one story to another, it was these verses way back in 2000, it was these verses, verses 21 and 22, that when I read for the first time at age 13, I became a Christian. I remember the moment distinctly as if it was yesterday, but maybe that story is for another time. 
And although most of us don't have a story as dramatic as Shane's, all of our stories are basically the same. And these verses go through our story. It's as if Mike Munro is saying to us, this is your life. Verse 21. <laughs> Verse 21. We were all enemies in our minds because of our evil behavior. We were all enemies in our minds because of our evil behavior. And just an aside there, it's fascinating and it's so true that our minds follow our behavior. We have a tendency to think or believe that our thinking determines our actions. But it works the other way around. We don't want to live as if there's a God, and so we rationalize the possibility away. That's the way it works. We were all enemies in our minds because of our evil behavior. Verse 22, but now he has reconciled you, uh, reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death. That is, the creator has acted in love towards us, his enemies. This is our story, and it continues, verse 22, in order to present us holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation. That's Shane's story, that's my story, that's your story. And the way it works like, is like this. Jesus, the source of life and wisdom, he changes us. He changes us objectively at first. It's a truth outside of us. He changes us. So no matter how you feel about it, even if you don't understand how it works, or even if it, you doubt how it could possibly be true about you, because of Jesus' death, you are objectively, you are objectively holy in God's sight, without blemish and free from accusation. You can undo that reality as much as you can go back in history and take Jesus off the cross. It's objectively true. That's you. Holy in God's sight, without blemish and free from accusation. It's objectively true, even if it's subjectively, subjectively, in my experience, not true. I can tell you for sure that in my experience of myself and in Arian's experience of me, I am certainly not holy, without blemish, and free from accusation. But the thing is, Jesus is working out the objective realities subjectively. Jesus is working out the objective realities subjectively. That is, the gap between the objective and the subjective is closing. That's the work of God in us, his church. He's working in us new creation, and he won't stop until he's finished. We saw it in Shane's life, and we, for Christians, have experienced it to some degree or another. So that's my second point, the effect of wisdom. Thirdly, growing in wisdom. So if Jesus is the source of wisdom and his effect in our life is transformation, closing the gap between the objective and the subjective, how can we grow in it? How can we grow in wisdom? How can we, in step with the Spirit, work out the objective into the subjective? And this is where Paul waxes lyrical from 125. I have become Jesus' servant by the commission, of God, the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. We see a few bits which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. To our growth, our growth, making the objective into the subjective, our growth 
has something to do with growing in maturity in Christ. Chapter 2, verse 2 to 3. My goal is that they, he's speaking of the latest in church, but in effect you as well. My goal is that you may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that you may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that you may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. We work out the objective into the subjective. When I say that objective, does that make sense? You know, yeah, we work out the objective realities into the subjective experience by knowing Christ more and more. He is the treasure. And finally, again, chapter 2, verse 6 to 7. This is the theme verses for the whole book. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. So growing in wisdom is all about living our lives in Jesus. Paul says in these verses, setting our roots into him. So it's a tree metaphor, setting our roots deeply into him. He says as well, building our life on him. Paul's throwing the metaphors at us. He wants, he wants it to be completely clear. Growing wisdom is growing roots into Jesus. It's growing a life on the foundation of Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Jesus is the source of life and wisdom, and so we need to live, if you like, in contact with him. We need to live in contact with him, or maybe, to put it another way, we need to connect the Christ in us of 127, the Christ in us, the Spirit, the hope of glory, we need to connect the Christ in us to Jesus, the resurrected and ascended one on the throne of glory. And how do we do this? The most basic answer is to pattern our lives around this one, to have our lives orbit around him. So if you want one picture to remember, I want you to remember that orbit picture. To have our lives orbit around Jesus so that Jesus is the still point, the still point in your turning world. That's a quote from T.S. Eliot, by the way. The still point in your turning world. Don't make the still point around which your life orbits. Don't make it family. Don't make it work. Don't make it money. Don't make it success. They will all, those, if your life orbits around those things, they will dry you out. You'll burn out. There's no life in those things. Jesus is where the treasure is. And so we need to pattern each day around Jesus. We need to find a time to feed on Christ in the Bible and in prayer. We need to find times in our lives to go for a walk and listen to some worship music. We need to maybe just go for a walk and not listen to anything. Enjoy filling your lungs with the air God gives. Enjoy smashing out some chin-ups and worshipping Jesus or hearing the birds, his creation. We need to commit each day to him and, and each day's work. The one in whom and for whom all things were created. We need to orbit our lives around Jesus each day and each week. Each Sunday is why we gather. It's a healthy routine, orbiting our lives around Jesus. Find a time each week as well to rest well. To rest well. Because it's very hard to enjoy the sustaining gifts of God, which are everywhere in our lives, if we're exhausted and burnt out and frazzles. Resting is really just a way to actually connect yourself to Jesus healthily. So each day, each week, and if you come to church each week, you're actually doing the yearly thing as well, patterning your life around Jesus each year. We very roughly here um, follow the church calendar, which is all about 
having the calendar revolve around the gospel, which is the life, death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus and the giving of the Spirit. The year, the calendar is revolving around Jesus. Make Jesus the still point of your turning world. Now, I'm going to quote C.S. Lewis. This is probably my favorite quote of, of any of his. I'll, I'll say this about a thousand times in my time left here as an Albans. If you want to get warm, you must stand near the fire. If you want to be wet, you must get into the water. If you want joy, power, peace, and eternal life, you must get close to or even into the thing that has them. If you are close to it, the spray will wet you. We pattern our lives around Jesus because he is the source. As C.S. Lewis goes on to say, he's the great fountain of energy and beauty spurting up at the very centre of reality. So in the words of our recently departed queen, God sent into the world a unique person, neither a philosopher nor a general. I love how she says this, important though they are. But God has sent into the world a saviour. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you so much for how you have revealed to us what you're like, the God of the universe. You're a God who suffers, you're a God who weeps, you're a God who celebrates and, and finds great joy in knowing others, including us. And Father, we pray that you continue to work in us your fruit that comes from Jesus. Please help us live lives that revolve that orbit around your son, the one you love. Please make us more like him. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.